Hello, Ars Technica listeners. This is the latest serialization of an episode of the After On podcast. We're splitting this one into three segments starting today, and I'll be talking to medical futurist Daniel Kraft. I don't know anyone with a broader purview on the crazy range of medical developments that are now vying to extend or radically improve our lives. I've known Daniel socially and professionally for years. He founded and runs the annual Exponential Medicine Conference, which is one of the largest truly cross-disciplinary gatherings of life science researchers and innovators in the world. And he also founded and runs the medical faculty at Singularity University, a wonderfully unique academic institution that could only have arisen from the fertile soil of Silicon Valley. We actually conducted our interview at Singularity University, and we'll be talking quite a bit about that institution during the interview. When Daniel does a presentation, he's the opposite of that speaker we've all seen who has to do everything possible to pad their words and their slides to fill up their time slot. With Daniel, I always feel like there's an entire presentation lurking behind each and every slide that he puts up on the screen. He just has so much surface area because of those two very complimentary jobs of his. They put him in touch with hundreds of startups and researchers every year. Daniel is particularly deep in medical devices, ranging from consumer-grade gear to tools that only turn up in research hospitals. And as an oncologist, he's, of course, deeply informed about cancer as well. Just a couple more words of context before the interview starts. As you may know from previous episodes here on ours, my podcast dives deep into complex issues in science, tech, and society, which are worth understanding a bit better. Each episode's built around an in-depth interview with a world-class expert in the relevant field. I do 20 to 30 hours of upfront research and preparation before sitting down with my guests, and I structure my interviews carefully so their information density hopefully feels a bit more like a TED Talk than a meandering long-form interview. And with that, let's start my interview with Daniel Kraft. So, Daniel, it's great to be here in Singularity University's headquarters in this gorgeous old building on this vast and historic stretch of land. Could you tell us the official name of this complex and a bit about its history? NASA Ames Research Park, originally a naval base. And if you look out the window here, you see this huge Hangar 1 that was built in the early 30s to house airships the size of the Hindenburg. And they'd float out over the ocean looking for German U-boats. And this was a very active base all the way through like the 90s. And this piece of land here is quite amazing because we're like one exit from Google. We're like 15 minutes from Stanford or 40 minutes or so from San Francisco. So it's this great convergence point. And now we're seeing everything from Singularity University to Google's building some elements here. There's the airstrip here, which NASA still uses, the actual NASA Research Center across the gate where they have wind tunnels, flight simulators. And I have to say, Hangar 1 is simply massive. I remember when I was an undergrad, you'd go way up on Skyline Boulevard, which is this fairly distant high ridge, many miles away, and you would look at the sweep of Mountain View in Palo Alto. You just see this giant black building like Darth Vader's garage. Right. At its time, it was like one of the largest rooms in the world. And actually, if you look next to the hangar today, there's a B-17 and a B-24 and a B-25 bomber for a World War II vintage. And I love old aviation. I'm a pilot. I love warbirds. I'm going to take you after our interview to go climb around some yes. old warplanes. We're going to make pilgrimage to these fighter planes. But first, we're going to talk a bit about the future of medicine. And let's ease into that by reviewing your own background. You're from the East Coast, right? I grew up in the D.C. area inside the Beltway. I always like gravitated to science and biology a bit. 
But when I was in high school, I did a little internship at the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Oh, I didn't realize that. And that was 10th grade. In 11th grade, we had to do a science fair project. And I'd worked in a lab helping make some of these early monoclonal antibodies to study immunology and the IgE receptor, which is responsible for releasing histamine when you have allergies. And to make a super long story short, I came back to the lab with this idea that we could use some of those monoclonal antibodies that we were using to study these receptors to block them from IgE binding, which is what happens when you have pollen allergy. Those little pollen proteins get in your bloodstream. They cross-link this IgE and triggers these cells to release histamine, which makes you sneeze and feel miserable. This whole approach ended up being a potential way to cure allergies. We took it into rat models and showed we could cure them of their allergies. And my thought was, we should take this to humans. And folks, it's a great idea, Daniel, but we can't humanize antibodies yet. This is in the mid to late 1980s to date myself. Fast forward 10 years later, I'm a Stanford medical student. I get a call from Genentech. And they said, Daniel, can we see the very early papers you did on this Scientra project? Because we're in a patent dispute with another biotech company for what is now a very popular drug called Zolair, which is doing exactly the same approach, blocking this IgE molecule through an injection of antibodies. So your high school paper <laughs> was prior art in an actual significant intellectual property infringement lawsuit? As I understand it. And my joke was at Genentech, I'm, I'm here for my royalty check. <laughs> but that's what kind of got me to Brown University where I did a biochemistry undergrad. So of course, you were a pre-med, which is not unusual. A bit more unusual, though, you were also really heavily into flight, which has remained an ongoing theme in your life and career. Yeah, well, I'm like the kid who never really grew up. I mean, I have a four-year-old who's really into dinosaurs. When I was a four-year-old, I was really into space and flying. Grew up in the D.C. area. We used to go to the Smithsonian all the time. And my father was a journalist and another journalist friend. We went down and saw the very last Apollo mission. Apollo 17 launched the moon. So I was like four or five. I was at the last really? Apollo mission. It was a night launch. And the first geologist, the first scientist was on that mission. So I always had the space and flying bug and I always wanted to be an astronaut and be a fighter pilot. And I think I probably went to the Air and Space Museum hundreds of times. Oh man, I would have hated you at that age because I grew up in Connecticut, which was close enough to go to the Air and Space Museum once as a child, but not close <laughs> enough to go hundreds of times. So I had this space and flying bug and at Brown University, it turns out they had a flying club and you could literally learn to fly in a 1970 Cessna 150. And so as a freshman, I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to learn to fly. I got my pilot's license in about a year. Later was the president of the flying club. And we do some fun, crazy things like take the planes to Martha's Vineyard and do flower bombing competitions on these grass airstrips. So when you got to Stanford, you went through medical school. You also studied aeroastro, correct? Yeah. One of the wonderful things about Stanford as a medical school, first of all, was pass-fail, which was helpful for the first couple of years. So I took a class in aeroastro engineering. I was the only non-engineer. And I got to do all the life sciences planning for a mission to Mars. A mission that was deemed to be plausible at that time. It was a seriously developed plan. This is back in 1990. It was still with the Soviets. So we even had a visiting set of Soviets. They were some of the last Soviets. It was 1990. <laughs> you, you caught them in their last several moments as Soviets. Yeah, and so we worked out all these elements from the physics to do we do microgravity? Because it's like six months to nine months or longer to get to Mars. What kind of crew do you put together? What kind of life support system? So I was kind of the input on that. I had some background because when I was an undergraduate at Brown, I spent a whole summer at Kennedy Space Center diving into where biology and medicine meets space. From thinking about life support to countermeasures to diet, we were there in the actual hangar where the Apollo missions rolled out of. We would go down that exact elevator that Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Collins went out as we'd ride it every day down to lunch. I would have been tempted to, when nobody was looking, carve the initials N-A into the wall of the elevator, just knowing that generations of people thereafter would all whisper, that was Neil Armstrong who carved that. How cool would that be? That would be a You'd trick. be like giving a gift to all future passengers of that elevator. 
So then you got out of medical school at Stanford. You went to Harvard for your residency. Is that when you joined the Air National Guard? Was it when you were at your residency at Harvard? I was in the life sciences group. We can hear a B-17 bomber fly by right there. I love that you can identify the plane by the sound. Actually, that might have been a P-51 Mustang. I was going to say, I was going to say. The sound of a Merlin engine. But circling back, you know, five years later when I was a resident at Mass General, I did some research and found that there was a Air National Guard unit on Cape Cod, which flew F-15s. And I went out to visit and they said, we'd love to have you. And so I raised my right hand and was signed into the service of the United States government as a flight surgeon. And the Air National Guard is a bit like the Air Force Reserves. I joined and I took my vacation time and spent six weeks at Brooks Air Force Base in Texas. And we had six weeks of training in aerospace medicine. As a flight surgeon, you're not operating in the sky. You're basically the team doctor for the pilots. And there's some rules about keeping them healthy or if they have a certain issue, what you can fly and you can't fly part of your role is to fly with it. And so I got to go up and dogfight and do air refueling and a bunch of stuff that you'd never otherwise get to do. Particularly when we got to do missions, for example, I went with my squadron to Saudi Arabia in 2000. And we did the no-fly missions over Iraq at the time. Really? And I can say I've flown over Iraq in an AWACS jet. Now, going to the academic side of your training during that, when you got to Harvard, you focused in a diversity of things, pediatrics, hematology, and oncology, correct? I did this sort of combined program at Mass General Hospital and at Boston Children's Hospital and had an intense but a pretty amazing four years. It was a great four years. So I would imagine at that point, you would have presumed yourself to be on an academic course, maybe do some clinical work, but it sounds like you were on a trajectory to be in a medical research-oriented setting. But a couple of things took you on this exotic path of being a health futurist. And the TED conference kind of changed your life, didn't it? You came to TED, what was it, in 06? I was in 06, 12 years ago, and I was still a hemonc and bone marrow transplant fellow. Hemonc, meaning hematology and Hematology. And a friend of mine had gone to the TED conference and said, this is perfect for you. I'd seen the website. It was not too far away, and I was lucky to apply and get an academic partial scholarship and went to my first TED. And that was life-changing. In part because you crossed paths with Peter Diamandis, the founder of the XPRIZE, who later called you when he started Singularity University. Was that shortly thereafter? So I reconnected with Peter, who I'd known since I was 22 years old. And then a couple years later, Peter was putting together the initial planning for Singularity University. And the whole idea was like, Peter read the book, The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil, a famed inventor and futurist about the rapid pace of Moore's law and other technologies improving and accelerating to the point where your smartphone has more computing power than all the computers in the world. And that folks weren't necessarily in that exponential mindset. And the future of solving big problems was to bring today's and future's leaders to understand these exponential technologies. So the summer of 2009, we had our first SU, Singularity University GSP, Global Solutions Program. And we had 40 amazing participants from all around the world who got full scholarships and came. It was supported by the Googles and the Autodesks and others in the Valley. And that was our first summer of now 10 years. But the theme then was to have folks who came in with backgrounds in medicine, biotech, nanotech, 3D printing, who had an entrepreneurial and a global mindset to not just solve a problem to make money, but to have a big impact on the world. And a lot of new startups have come out of Singularity and a lot of new relationships and convergence have evolved. And the summer program, it's 10 weeks? 10 weeks living right here. It's in the, residential. Everybody's on campus. Right. Full ride. Now we're up to 90 participants, which is about all that can fit in the housing and in our main classroom. Full ride. They're all on full scholarship. Full scholarship, room and board. So it attracts a really interesting set of folks. The early 30s is probably the average age. It's not folks who are really in graduate school. Some are. So more practitioners than academics. Folks who have 
deep technical, business, entrepreneurial, and global experience. And we, I think we had like 26 countries represented last year. Yeah, I was going to ask, is so about 50-50 international U.S.? Probably more 80% international, actually. 80% international. Yeah. And half women now. Wow. So that is a very intense experience, 10 weeks of that. And then describe a typical day in class. Essentially, the first, let's say, third of the summer is getting people on the same page, cross-training and AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, blockchain, whatever, getting folks to understand them, being taught by everything from astronauts to Nobel laureates to startup founders down the street. And there's piles of people who come through for a lecture. And then there's right. people like you who are basically running part of the faculty. Right. So I've been the chair of the medicine side. So I put together like 12 different lectures plus workshops. We do site visits to Stanford. After the first third, we do a deeper dive where folks who want to maybe focus more on health or energy or environmental elements could do those deeper dives. And then roughly the second half of the summer, teams would form to create a new initiative, an NGO, a new startup that would solve some challenge with exponential technology. So one of the examples of companies that have come out of here is Matternet. In our second summer, 2010, they saw early drones, which at the time were still toys. So they thought, well, this is on an exponential trend. Could you use drones? to deliver things like medical packages and blood and vaccines to parts of the world after a flood or an emergency. Initially, a crazy idea, a drone to deliver anything. And that now has evolved, Matternet and others, using drones to deliver serious packages to the point where it's obvious that Amazon will do that soon. I'm holding here in my hand a 3D printed ratchet from a company called Made in Space. From one of the early summers, they looked at the future of manufacturing. Hard to get supplies to the space station. What if you could print one there? And they designed a 3D printer that could fly in space and operate in microgravity. And I'm holding a ratchet here that actually was one of the first things they printed because they lost this ratchet on the space station. Oh, so they actually created a space-friendly 3D printer, put it in the International Space Station so that things could appear up there when they were needed as opposed to being flown up. It's just like Star Trek, not the holodeck, but the... Uh, the transporter. The, the transporter, transporter beam. And they even last year printed some of the first medical devices. You know, an astronaut tweaked his finger, needed a little brace, they could scan his finger and print it. So yeah. the whole idea of exponential thinking at Singularity University is to think about with a couple more clicks and more of law, where will AI be? Where will digital manufacturing be? Where will low-cost genomics be on that trajectory? And how could you combine those to solve a problem that couldn't be solved in the normal way today? You were kind enough to let my wife and I crash for one day. And That's that was it. an actually an astonishing day. I was amazed at the quality of faculty that came through and all the different things they talked about. Yeah, the faculty and the people who show up in the room, you know, yeah. from serious investors and folks who just exited companies to CI agents to governors and leaders from around the world. It's an amazing experience to go through. And you can get tons of information at su.org if you ever want to come. And then out of this erupted this conference that you now run called Exponential Medicine. Mm -hmm. We recognize that everyone's interested in health and medicine, personally, their own health, a family member, their society. And many folks had technologies and ideas that could apply to medical issues. So there was no place to really see what's the cutting edge in future of medicine. And most medical meetings and conferences are very siloed. I'll go to oncology conferences. Cardiologists go to cardiology ones. Every ology has its own siloed conference. It was very rare that you blend doctors, nurses, technologists, patients, investors together, and let them see a whole spread of what's happening in wellness, diagnostics, therapy, everything from drones to chatbots, and see how that could shift healthcare. And so I kind of experimented. We did this initial program and held it here at Singular University, and it was quite magical. And we now have this every November at the Hotel Del Coronado, this oldest resort on the West Coast. 
And we now bring 700 folks together, I think 38 countries. 700 attendees. 600 attendees, 80 faculty, 50 startups. And we spend like the first half day is a bit of sort of singularity U101, what's happening in AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, blockchain, et cetera. So lecture-based. A little bit lecture, kind of getting folks up to speed with what's happening, getting people to understand the pace of exponentials. And then we'll dive into what's happening with digital health and connected devices and what's happening with omics from genome to microbiome to proteome, how that's being impactful in understanding disease or therapy, what's happening with robotics, what's happening with global health, how do we democratize healthcare around the world, not just have a expensive stem cell therapy or gene therapy, but how can we use a simple smartphone and a simple wearable or an AI handheld ultrasound to enable a nurse in a rural village in Africa? How might I use virtual reality and medical training or chatbots for coaching? And we have a, an incredible array of folks who come and it's catalyzed a lot of new relationships, startups, funding. And I think it's quite unique to a quote unquote medical conference. And it's four days, is that right? Four days. It's four days. So the purview that you now have as a result of curating the several dozen people who come and speak every year at Exponential Medicine and also this constant refreshment of the faculty here at Singularity University, mm-hmm. you have an extravagantly comprehensive overview of the innovation side of medicine, like what's happening both at a consumer level and on a deep medical basis. You often talk about the transition from sick care to true health care, with sick care basically what we're doing today being very reactive and only realizing something's wrong when it's so wrong that it's evident to the naked eye. And moving to what you call true health care, which you characterize as being continuous proactive and participatory. When I hear that phrase, and particularly the word continuous, I think of the explosion of data that's starting to radiate from our bodies as a result of recent and ongoing technological developments. And this is a process that's only just beginning. Right. So with this convergence of low-cost computing and, and mobile and batteries, we now can fit into a little sensor on your wrist, a whole set of technologies which would take the size of this room 30 years ago. Because that's the power of exponentials. And so today, what am I wearing? Well, I've got a Fitbit, maybe last year's version, but still can now do continuous heart rate, which is pretty amazing. It can track basic steps. It can track pretty finite elements of my sleep, how much time in deep, light, REM, how much I'm awake. My Apple Watch on my other wrist, it can also track my heart rate and sleep. It also has a little sensor on the wristband from a company called AliveCore, where I can do a full-on EKG for my watch. And apparently Apple has a bunch of other potential technologies already built into their watch that they haven't turned on because of the battery life issues. Really? But we're entering this era now where you could pack so much technology into a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or hundreds of other wearables that are similar. The challenge is creating a lot of digital exhaust. What do you do with that? What does it mean? Yep. We can now, with the accelerometer in your wrist, not just tell how many steps you're taking, but if your gait has changed. It may be able to predict whether you're about to have a fall or have a seizure. Let's talk about gait. It would be gait that would tell you about a pending fall or a seizure. We might learn that there's a digital signature for folks who, uh, someone who's in their 80s or 90s might have a fall and break their hip. Is there something that changed in their gait the day or two before? Right now, we're only in an early era where we're able to capture this digital exhaust. It usually lives on your smartphone, but we're starting to connect that to big databases and crowdsource that. Define digital exhaust. It means like the data about your steps or your sleep or your movement or your voice can be digital exhaust. Just all the stuff that's coming out of your body and is getting captured by one of these increasingly sophisticated devices. It could be this digital band-aid that tracks heart rate, respiratory rate, movement, actual EKG. That's a lot of digital signatures. It could be the tonality of your voice. It could be the molecules in your breath. A company out of Israel called Upright can measure your posture. In today's smartphone era, we have often smartphone neck. Our postures aren't great. This is a little brilliant device you put on the back and it just measures your posture. And 
if you're hunched over for too long, it just gives you a gentle buzz. Oh, and that trains your physiology over about a week of using this, retrain your parasympathetic system, sit up straighter. So that it becomes automatic, you don't have to wear it anymore. Exactly. And that apparently has some great outcomes with folks who have already have lower back pain. It feels to me that when the data becomes continuous, it becomes an almost qualitatively different sort of input. Like an analogy might be somebody who is a really small investor back in the 90s with a personal brokerage account who would look at yesterday's stock price in the newspaper and compare that data situation up to the millisecond real-time feed with all kinds of exotic built-in analytics that a modern professional trader would have. Those two data situations are so different, they're almost unrelated as tools. It's almost as different as leeches versus penicillin. And with medical data, we are going from this time where you would have these radically infrequent snapshots, like maybe my doctor would know my blood pressure every third year to constant, constant, constant checking of all this different data. But the challenge with that, to extend the trader analogy, is if you took that mid-90s small investor into a modern trading floor, they would have no idea what to do with the data. And similarly, you're implying by your discussion, when you're talking about gate, for instance, maybe someday we'll figure out by retroactively looking at this big wad of data that these are the warning signs, but we sure don't know what they are now. Like we're going to have to spend a lot of time inhaling this stuff. Exactly. It's a bit of a so what if you're just having piles of exponential amounts of data. You don't want data, you want actual information and knowledge that you can apply, use that in an integrated way to say, Rob, your sleep is changing. Your resting heart rate has gone from 55 on average to 63. Maybe something's going on with your cardiovascular system. We're in this awkward phase now mm -hmm. where a bunch of us need to start exhaling this digital exhaust mm -hmm. and capturing it so we can figure out what in the world it means. But there are already some interesting signs. Tell us the story about the person whose life was saved by their Apple Watch. There was an individual who noticed that his Apple Watch showed him his heart rate was 180 when he's normally and, in the And 60s. the watch nudged him or he just happened to notice? I think he happened to notice it. And he was like, this yeah. doesn't seem right. And he took himself to the emergency room and it turns out he had a pulmonary embolism, a clot in his lungs, which could have killed him. He normally wouldn't have felt that his heart rate was double its normal rate. Yeah. I like to call that the early version of a check engine light for the body. I love that analogy, which I've heard you use before. And today's sort of 1.0 version of the check engine light makes this data available to an observant person, which is very simple, but was enough to save this guy's life, clearly. Version 2.0 would probably involve the watch nudging you when it realizes that your heart rates spiked to 180, even though the GPS and the accelerometer on your phone say you're sitting still. 3.0 is when the Apple Watch calls you an Uber ambulance and, and takes right. you to the emergency room. And by the way, Uber and Lyft are getting into healthcare to help bring patients to clinics and hospitals. And what's interesting is, you know, the Apples and the Samsungs and the Googles all getting into this to the point now where my iPhone can collect this data and connect it back to my medical record at Stanford. So my doctor literally could log in and look at my weight for my scale, my blood pressure, if I was using a connected blood pressure cuff, my sleep data. Where this will hopefully go is if my doctor has 2,000 patients, he might see five patients in the morning on this dashboard that are moving into yellow or red, yeah. that they have something going on, might want to call them proactively. Some of that analysis would have to be done by the system, not by him, because he can't crunch data on 2,000 patients. He wouldn't know what to look for. Right. But what you just pointed at, I think is interesting and important. Your doctor can now see the data from your Apple Watch. That wasn't the case for anybody as recently as a year ago, right? And this is the first baby step in that direction. What was it, 40 hospitals? So Apple pioneered with one of the big electronic medical record systems, Epic, that they could connect the dots from your HealthKit app into your medical record at about 40 hospitals. And as of two months ago, my medical record 
from Stanford, I can see on my Apple phone. Oh, it goes both ways. So you can see the data that's stored at Stanford on your phone, and Stanford can pick up the data that's radiating out of your watch. And it's that combination. We talked about the fact that you usually get very intermittent data and occasional blood pressure, an occasional EKG, some snippet of information when you're in the clinic, which is hopefully 0.000001% of your life. So intermittent data means we're reactive. We wait for the heart attack, stroke, cancer to come. When we're the beginning ages of connecting those dots going from quantified self, where I just have this information from my Fitbit and my scale, to quantified health, where that data is gonna flow to my healthcare system and be useful in tuning prevention, optimizing my health, picking up disease early. And then if I have a disease like high blood pressure or even a cancer or heart disease, it can help me manage a feedback-looped system to optimize care. This deal with Apple and these 40 hospitals, and that is a sub 1% of the United States population. Mm -hmm. But there was a time when a tiny sliver of 1% of people had access to GPS because they had high-end cars that had it built in, which was the only way you could get it. This is big. It's happened at 40 influential hospitals, and it will presumably radiate far beyond that. But the other thing is finding all the patterns in the data that nobody would recognize right now. Like we talked about gait. It may well be that Weird patterns in the way that somebody walks is highly predictive that they're about to come down with Lou Gehrig's disease, which does impact somebody's gait. There is no way that you or I or the smartest doctor in the world could go through 15,000 person years of data coming off of these watches and come to that conclusion. So I've always worried when I thought of this thicket of data radiating from these watches and other devices, how are we ever going to parse that? Then you told me about this mind-boggling work that was just done at Google with irises, which again, like the Apple 40 hospital deal, is but the first and earliest sign of how something is going to get fixed. Well, we're now in this early but still exciting convergence of artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning being applied to now this explosion of health data from digital exhaust from our wearables to our genomics to our microbiome data to our connected homes to all these things. The trick now is, what do you do with it? How do you analyze it? How do you get the correlations that have actionable information? So for example, now with your smartphone and the camera and a simple attachment, you can take a picture of your retina, the back of your eyeball, the arteries and veins of your eye, which can indicate lots of issues. Now, Google and others have developed ways to take pictures of your retina and apply machine learning. And they can tell if it's a boy or a girl just from looking at the retina, which no clinician can do. They've now been able to pick up for folks who have diabetes who might have diabetic retinopathy, who's likely to progress or not, so they can predict production of disease. And what they published a couple months ago, very powerfully, is just by looking at the retina and again, analyzing the blood vessels and changes there and patterns, who's likely to get a heart attack or stroke. So you might get a little ping based on your retina scan that the next two weeks, you have a high risk of having a heart attack or stroke. Maybe you want to go see your cardiologist. This is coming up with insights that no doctor could ever possibly replicate. They can determine gender, as you said. They can approximate age. They can determine whether or not somebody smokes. And no person could do that. They literally took in 300,000 eye scans. They matched it to the known data on these people. Do they smoke? How old are they? And so forth. And they got to the point where they could take this massive data and make powerful predictions. And to me, that points to how in the world are we going to interpret gait and whether gait is predictive of a stroke. This is precisely the template. I don't think anybody outside of this research team could have possibly guessed a year ago that looking at a bunch of eye scans, we'd suddenly be able to tell gender, do they smoke? Are they in danger of diabetic retinopathy and all these other predictive things? 
pumping this gait information, this breath, this sweat information, which we'll talk about in a second, all these other things, through a similar machine learning process will create totally unexpected correlative reality and allow us to take these steps. It's moving really fast. And now there are already companies out with ways to basically already do a better job of radiologists are looking at chest x-rays and CT yeah. scans. There's the dermatology side. There's all these things I don't think will replace the radiologist, pathologist, dermatologist, but hopefully augment them. Some people think that the radiologists in particular are kind of doomed. It's going to change their practice for sure. But right yeah. now, they might spend 80% of the time looking at normal chest x-rays. And yep. in many parts of the world, there are not enough radiologists or it takes too long to get the results back. So it's going to be a bit of a blend. But it's a huge sea change. The challenge is no doctor even wants to look at some of that raw data from your Fitbit or get those check engine light signals because they don't well, want they to be wouldn't know what to do with. It. Would a doctor even know what to do with continuous heart rate information, really? Well, one classic one, this LiveCore EKG thing, this company is now doing over a million EKGs a month. It's a device you can buy on Amazon today. So they're already doing a million EKGs per month, this little startup. And that's probably more than anybody has ever done ever, right? I mean, they're probably getting data that has never been fathomed before, right? Absolutely. This is this big data era. You've heard of probably the Framingham trial. That was 80 years ago in Massachusetts, a pretty limited set of European-derived folks. That is still driving a lot of what we do today based on that small subset of that population from 60 years ago. Now, to be clear, for those who don't know, the Framingham study followed these people very rigorously over a period of decades and all their health outcomes and weighed them and checked their blood pressure on an annual basis, yep. right? Exactly. Which is a speck of data compared to what we're talking about now. The significance of that, like how many major health insights ended up radiating out of the Framingham study? A lot of insights, a lot of standard operating procedures for when you might get screened, what kind of medications will work or won't work. Some of it's pretty flawed because it's still a pretty homogeneous type of population in Massachusetts. But nonetheless, it had a major shaping right. influence on healthcare in the 20th century, this one study with this relative speck of data, right? Correct. But what's happening just this last month, just launched at the NIH, is this new platform called the All of Us trial. Yep. They're going to take a million Americans and trying to get not just Caucasians, but Asians and Hispanics and African-Americans and different socioeconomic classes, let them volunteer their data, including their wearable device data. Some are going to get full genomic and other scans from genome to microbiome. And we're going to be doing basically a Framingham study on steroids in real time. With a million people of incredibly diverse backgrounds with radical amounts of data as opposed to the few things they could get on an annual doctor's visit. Absolutely. And then hopefully that will inform what to do with this digital exhaust, how to like tell that your gait is changing or your tremor is picked up by your watch that might be early Parkinson's. And then when you pick up disease early at stage zero, stage one, then you have a much better chance of treating it or curing it. And we talked a little bit about crowdsourcing. We all can become data donors, but if we share some data, just like we share our data when we drive, very few people listening to this podcast drive anymore without Google Maps or Waze. Yeah. We're sharing some pretty private data, but in exchange, we get the map of the traffic and even can tell where the cops are hiding out. If we had that Google Map or Waze for healthcare where we're incentivized to share data still anonymously, when we get back our own healthcare map, and when I'm trying to be on my healthcare journey for myself or my patients, I can guide them in a way that's real-time informed and might mean that you need to take a different route if you have a certain set of genes or conditions. The Waze analogy is actually a really, really good one because if we all just think about what it used to be like driving with a physical printed map, even a really good one like the Thompson's Guide in Los Angeles, it was remarkably comprehensive. You couldn't get around without it. But comparing that to Waze, to this real-time thing that's taking in data from millions of other drivers, crunching it and routing people, and that's the step up we're going to take and to me, again, that eye scan study was so profound because it is the first indication that, yeah, we can take this morass of data, 
put it through very smart machine learning algorithms and start coming up with those predictive points, much in the way that we are all very viscerally experiencing the fact that it's done with traffic data. And with that context, I think it becomes really interesting to talk about the next things that are going to enter the check engine light equation, some of the things that we aren't quite monitoring yet, but are probably on the menu in the coming five years. Hello, Ars Technical listeners. Sorry to end on a bit of a cliffhanger there, but our time is up for today. And by the way, I'll open tomorrow's installment by repeating those last several lines to reset context. But if you can't wait to hear the rest of it, or if you'd just like to browse my archive of 30-ish other episodes, you can head on over to my site at after-on.com, or simply type the words after on into your favorite podcast player. This interview originally ran on May 29th of last year, and you'll also find, in addition to this episode, lots of stuff in my feed about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. If you like what I do, I hope you'll consider subscribing to my podcast and listening to some of the episodes in the archive, all of which were designed to have long shelf lives and none of which have gone stale yet. And of course, you can join me here tomorrow on ours, where we'll continue with the second and final part of this particular interview.